There's just, this is such a longer story than I thought it was with so many details. I don't remember what I asked you about, but I'm excited. Oh, it's juicy. Kind of. Oh, good. It's a fun story. Great. I love a fun story. Uh, Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. (laughs) Oh, geez. Okay. Welcome back to... (laughs) Can I just say hello? (laughs) Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Why did you hesitate to say your name? You were like, is that what I say? (laughs) That was the face you made. Like, what's my line? (laughs) Um, line. Um... (laughs) <laughs> oh right, 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 Jane. <laughs> yes, it's it's Jane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's your name. Me. It's me. It's you. It's you. How are you? I'm all right. I am. Are you? Is your face sunburned? My forehead is it, rather red. Yes, but it doesn't really. Hurt. Yes, but and it's it looks red. It, yeah, my legs were so bad, um, but they're Ooh. better now. They look more tan than red now. Um, my back was kind of red, but yeah, I went on my aunt's boat yesterday and I put on sunscreen, um, but still my dad and I both, he also put on sunscreen. We came home with a rather red looking forehead and nose. What was the SPF? It was like 35, I think. Which is No, the TikTok that we watched about (laughs) this specifically said that if it's under 50, you can't do it. You got, you got to get more. It was like a facial sunscreen. It was the one that I got from my FabFitFun box. Okay, FabFitFun, I'm sorry to tell you this, led you astray. <laughs> but you still... Although I don't like, think my dad used that. He used a, a 55 one. And I used a 55 okay. one on the rest of my body. Well, my, I, okay. I didn't leave much skin exposed because I was still recovering from my other sunburn. So just like my ankles and stuff. You just got to give it time to recover. Maybe this you'll just have a sick tan afterwards. Maybe. <laughs> I hope I, I have like kind of a funny like um tan line on my back <laughs> I love my that. straps so you said your story's kind of long and mine's not long but it's hefty so yeah. you want to get started sure you asked me about the HMS bounty and what happened there oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> I'm excited I love I love maritime crimes. I think it was a crime. Yeah, I love yeah, maritime yeah, yeah, yeah. stories. Great, great, great. It, it, yeah. Well, the sad thing I learned though at the very beginning of this was um, the ship that I thought. Uh, see, there was a ship docked in Booth Bay for a very long time that the the placard called it the Bounty, and I thought it was the Bounty, but. <laughs> It was not the one. When I, when, when I first Googled the bounty, um, like one of the Google image results that came up said like um, the bounty built in 1960 and I, for the movie. And I was, I suddenly thought, oh no, all the bounty is is a movie and the boat that I knew was just built for this movie and it's not really a story. I'm just going to be reading the, the plot of the movie. But right. nope, the boat that I, I never saw the official bounty. The boat that was docked in Booth Bay was the model that they built for the movie to film it. Mm-hmm. But the, the HMS Bounty was a real ship. Yes. So the HMS Bounty was a small merchant vessel that the British Royal Navy purchased. She was built in 1784 in Yorkshire, England. When it was built, it was named Bethia. But when the British Navy Ooh. bought it, they renamed it to the Bounty. They bought it for the equivalent of 209,000 pounds, 
on May 23rd, 1787. The purpose of the, shi- of the ship was to transport plants. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> well, in fact, they had one very specific plant in mind. This plant is called the breadfruit. Now, <laughs> it's a real fruit. I already love this. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I'm assuming it's a real fruit because this is a real shit. It grows in tropical locations. Um, and it's uh, in the mulberry and jackfruit family. It's a big green fruit. Um, mm-hmm. It's considered to be one of the highest yielding food plants. A single tree will produce up to 200 or more grapefruit-sized fruits per season, and it requires very little care. Mm. So the because of all <laughs> I love of these that. yeah so because of all these things it it's a really cheap f- source of food like you can okay. just buy a little bit and then have a, a long source of food for a very long time so England wanted to purchase some breadfruit plants to plant on their islands in the West Indies so that they could have a cheap food source for their African slaves. Okay. Not the most fun part of this, but that's the reason why they wanted the breadfruit. So the bounty had a a brief trip to Tahiti to study the plant and how to best transport it. The plan was to travel to Tahiti, which at the time was called its original name and what I I would consider its real name, which is Otahiti, spelled O-T-A-H-E-I-T-I. And there were a couple of different stories as to why it's now just called Tahiti and one of them was that a European heard them saying, oh, Tahiti, and they thought they were saying, oh, Tahiti. And the other was, mm. one was just that it was easier to spell, one that it was e- easier for Europeans to pronounce, just a bunch. But yeah, yeah I'm going to call it Tahiti, but I, I'm recognizing that, you know, the people who are from, like, native Tahitians call it, oh, Tahiti still. Okay, so we recognize yeah. that. Yeah. Cool. Maybe um, they, so they rename yeah. it? Who knows? Yeah. So they were going to travel to Tahiti, gather breadfruit plants, and then take them to the West Indies to plant them there. The Royal Navy Mm -hmm. appointed Lieutenant William Bly as captain of the bounty. He had served under James Cook, and he was his chief navigator at only the age of 21 and had come from a a family with a long naval tradition. Um, William Bly is going to be our, like, big character here. Oh, uh, main character. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Star next to the, his name. Yeah. The crew of the bounty consisted of 46 men, including Captain Bly. 44 were seamen of the Royal Navy. Get your jokes out now. And the other two... <laughs> no, I hate those jokes. I will yeah. not do it. <laughs> and the other two were civilian botanists that the Navy had hired to help care for the breadfruit in its <laughs> travels. Beautiful. This just does sound like the beginning of a Steven Spielberg movie. It's like we've <laughs> gathered the most unexpected <laughs> group of people. <laughs> we have a pirate, a botanist. The botanist. It reminds me of it reminds me of Atlantis, the crew from Atlantis. <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> yeah. The majority of the bounty's crew had been chosen specifically by Captain Bly or were recommended to him by patrons of the voyage. Um, mm-hmm. um Serving directly below him were his warrant officers, who were all appointed by the Navy Board and were headed by Sailing Master John Fryer. Uh, the other warrant officers were the boatswain, the surgeon, the carpenter, and the gunner. I don't really know what all of them do, but I can make guesses about the surgeon and the carpenter <laughs> and the gunner. Gunners? Probably. Yeah, they're like defense. Yeah. 
I'm pretty sure. Um, there was a small group of young men in the crew uh, who were called, quote, young gentlemen. And all, that it, it basically means intern. Um, the official... T- <laughs> <laughs> the official title that they were given on the roster was able seamen which is like the young the lowest rank you can have but it was all like younger men who were considered while they were on the ship to be honorary midshipmen and they were allowed to sleep in the midshipmen's quarters and Mm -hmm. they would work a long time alongside um two specific master mates and two midshipmen and Uh it, it was just to gain experience and learn about being on a ship and like would be remembered later for positions they could apply for later. So it was literally an unpaid internship. I, I don't know if all of them oh. were unpaid, but I know at least some of them agreed to be unpaid. Um, including Know your worth. Yeah. <laughs> don't take that. Well, I mean, think about it. They were given housing and food. Um, no, you sound like an angry capitalist. You <laughs> not an angry capitalist. You sound like a greedy capitalist. Um, <laughs> they deserve they deserve payment for their services. <laughs> One of those chosen by Captain Bly was 23-year-old Fletcher Christian, who had served under Captain Bly on another ship, the Britannia. Wait, wait, wait. this guy's 23 and taking He's... an unpaid internship? That's like being <laughs> 45 and taking an unpaid internship. And now, okay? The, <laughs> other funny thing about Flet- <laughs> the other funny thing about Fletcher Christian is that his family wanted him to be a lawyer, and he was like, no, I want to go to sea. <laughs> That sounds like the plot of The Lighthouse. It's not even his what? It's not even his first voyage with Captain Bly, but he's still an unpaid intern. Oh, man. Still one of the young gentlemen. Rough. Yeah. So rough. But um, Fletcher Christian is, like, another big character to remember. Now, I don't think that... I don't know. A lot of this research, I don't want to assume that anytime two men become good friends, it's gay because that's like not, um, <laughs> you know, men can be friends and it's not necessarily gay. Right. Like that's a toxic masculinity trait of thinking that that's not possible. Except in the movie Papillon, they were gay. <laughs> but the story of these two is kind of, mm, I don't know. Mm. Okay. So. I love gay undertones, even if it's not confirmed. It's, real, it's really got gay undertones, even though they're historical figures, but like, I'm just reading into details. Um, <laughs> so, Christian um, had previously sailed with Bly to the West Indies, and so the two had already formed a sort of master-pupil relationship, through which Christian had already I don't like that a... word, master-pupil. <laughs> don't love that. Um, so Christian had become a skilled navigator. Um, uh-huh. The bounty left Deptford, England on October 15th, 1787, and there's this area of water in between the Isle of Wight and mainland England that has this area that is called Spithead because it geographically is protected from wind. There's this tradition in England called uh, Fleet Review, which is where mm-hmm. naval ships will dock in Spithead and the monarch will come and like say like and review mm. the ships and be like yes good job and it's also where um naval ships will stop for final orders before they depart on a okay on a voyage so they I've heard that phrase before spithead yeah they were supposed to dock like really soon in spithead to receive final orders but there was really bad weather that delayed their arrival until november 4th oh. 
And again, oh. they took off on October 15th. So it took them over two weeks to get to Spithead. And it was supposed to be like a real quick thing. Captain Bly was really anxious because he wanted to reach Cape Horn before the end of the Southern summer. Um, and he wanted mm-hmm. to leave Spithead as quickly as possible. Cape Horn is um, the like southernmost point in South America. However, the British government didn't give the bounty high priority, so they didn't get to issuing their orders for another three weeks. So, oh my God! And then finally, on November twenty eighth, they were eight, they like had their orders and they were like ready to get going. But when they tried to leave Spithead, there kept being contrary winds, so they didn't leave Spithead until December twenty third. Oh my gosh, that's I know. terrible. They knew at that point that it was going to be really difficult to travel to Cape Horn because by the time they would get there, it would be winter down there and it just would not be good weather conditions to land in that area. So they got special permission from the government to have a backup plan of going to the Cape of New Hope in South Africa, which to me, that seems so like you're going all the way across the ocean to get to cape horn and then you have to go all the way back across it to get to the cape of new hope it doesn't sound like that easy of a plan b to me but i think it, they're, from the way they describe it it makes it sound like it's much easier to go east to west than it is north to south so the trip to cape horn itself went really well um bligh was known to be strict about details historian sam mckinney was quoted to say bligh enforced rules with a fanatical zeal continually flussing and fussing and fuming over the cleanliness of his ship and the food served to the crew. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) Bly wrote in his dispatches that he was very pleased with his crew and that he had no occasion to administer punishment and that he found the men to be obedient as well as cheerful and content. And at the time, he was really well liked by the crew. He was, yes, he was a stickler for small details, but he also seemed to have their well-being in mind. There, There was this old, um, like, naval practice for um, watch shifts that you would have two, um, like watch men or watch crews that would each do four hour shifts going back and forth. But in order for his crew to be more well, more well rested, Bly came up with a new system where there would be three shifts. And so you Mm. would have eight hours to rest in between your shifts. And in addition to that, he added regular music and dance parties, like to keep up morale, keep the, the crew exercising. The only bad relationship at the time was between Captain Bly and his surgeon, um, whose name is Huggin. Um, Bly was known to say that Huggin was indolent, unhygienic drunkard, which we're going to later find out is true. Oh, shit. Also, he grew even closer with Fletcher Christian and treated him as if he was the unofficial second in command rather than the actual second in command, John Fryer. Oh, that would cause problems, yeah. Mm-hmm. On March 2nd, Bly officially gave Fletcher Christian the rank of acting lieutenant. While there's no evidence that Fryer was specifically mad about being outranked by someone who was so much his junior, from then on out, the relationship between Fryer and Bly was not great. And it's... That checks out. You know, wink, wink, that, we know the reason. Um, it's week- like me being at school and turning to a fifth grader and being like, okay, you're the assistant site director now, you know? <laughs> yeah. A week after Christian's promotion, Fryer insisted that Bly order the flogging of a crew member named Matthew Quintel, uh, who received 12 lashes for insolence and mutinous behavior. Which it's kind of unknown whether or not that was true. But this was like kind of, some people think that this was Fryer kind of digging at 
Bly because Bly was constantly saying like, oh, we're going to have a voyage with no corporal punishment. Um, and he was really proud of that. And he really wanted to be so respected by his crew that he didn't need to punish them. So the fact that fire made him punish someone, he was like not happy. Um, okay. Yeah. That's so they approached Cape Horn on April 2nd. And there were strong gales and high seas and an unbroken period of stormy weather, which Bly wrote exceeded what I had never met with before with severe squalls of hail and sleet. On April 3rd, the next day, the weather had pushed the ship farther north than it had been a week before. They spent um, two weeks trying to approach Cape Horn and every time the weather pushed them back. On April 17th, Bly announced that they would stop trying and they would turn around and sail for the Cape of Good Hope. Bly wrote that this was to the great joy of every person on board. They were all like, heck yeah, let's get out of here. Let's go over there. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go anywhere else. <laughs> we hate it here. <laughs> on May 24th, the bounty anchored in False Bay, which is just east of the Cape of Good Hope. They spent five weeks there repairing the ship and making plans for the next leg of their journey. Bly's letters home indicated that he and his crew were doing so well that when they returned, he expected to receive great praise. At one point during this time, this is kind of a key detail, Bly lent Fletcher Christian some money. And at the time, this was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And it was considered a significant act of friendship. And it became a source of great anxiety and resentment from the other young men on ship. Um, and it <laughs> caused Christian some like uncomfortableness with the other ones because he was being showed such favoritism from the captain. Right. On July 1st, they left the Cape of Good Hope for their next port, Adventure Bay in Tasmania. They had similar troubles approaching to Adventure Bay as they had at Cape Horn, um, but eventually they did manage to anchor there on August 9th, August 19th. The crew okay. spent some time there recuperating fishing and replenishing their water supply and cutting down trees for wood. They apparently had a peaceful encounter with the native population. This was the place where things started to kind of crack a little bit. Bly apparently was unhappy with the method in which his carpenter, William Purcell, was cutting wood. And they exchanged angry words over it, and Bly ordered Purcell back to the ship. Purcell stood his ground and... Bly withheld his rations, which Bly wrote immediately brought him back to his senses. Okay. So this is the first example of Bly like getting really angry at something that everyone's like, calm down, and then him punishing people. On the ship's final leg to Tahiti, there were a number of other arguments. On April 9th, John Fryer refused to sign the ship's account book unless Bly provided him with a certificate attesting to his competence throughout the voyage. Particularly, I think, because in the middle of the voyage, um, he promoted one of the interns to be above him. Yeah, yeah. He was like, can you at least, like, write out a thing that says I'm good at my job? And Bly was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. So there was a, a big argument going on between Bly and Fryer. Bly summoned the entire crew and read Fryer the Articles of War, which is a list of regulations for naval and military service. And Fryer, because he was kind of embarrassed, backed down. There was also um, a really big problem with that alcoholic surgeon, Huggin, that we talked about before. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, he was drunk a lot of the time. And there was this one able seaman named James Valentine, and he suffered from asthma. And Huggin was treating okay. Valentine with bloodletting, you know, that oh, for yeah. asthma we know about. 
Um, but he was doing it so often and so carelessly because he was drunk that Valentine contracted a blood infection and died. Oh. That was not good. And then to cover up the mistake, Huggin told Bly that Valentine had died of scurvy. So because Bly now believed that his members of his crew were getting scurvy, he started putting his own medicinal remedies uh, to the diet of the entire crew. He was like, I don't know what they were. Who knows? But he just was like, no, uh, remedy I have for scurvy. Um, oh, no. That's all that's really said on that situation. But that sounds like not so good to me. <laughs> Especially because no, I don't scurvy. Yeah, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Huggin became constantly incapacitated from drinking after that. So Bly eventually confiscated his alcohol supply. And before arriving in Tahiti, Huggin's final task as surgeon was to check the crew for venereal diseases, STDs, if you were, and he found uh, yes, none. Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought this was an odd choice. I was like, why are you needing to test all these men of STDs before you land in Tahiti? But it became pretty clear that the second they get to the sh <laughs> to shore, the crew's like, great, you don't need us while we're at Tahiti. Let us know when you need us again. We're going to be fucking the natives. Like... <laughs> Oh, yeah, very normal. <laughs> yeah. So Huggin passed away while they were docked in Tahiti. So that's the end of his, his unfortunate tale on the bounty. Oh, poor um, Huggin. Yeah. Bly's first action when they arrived in Tahiti was to secure the cooperation of the local chieftains as well as the king of Tahiti, Pomare I. The paramount chief, um, Taina, was like the big one that they really needed to get on board. He had met Captain Bly before when he was sailing with James Cook, and he, okay. he remembered him fondly and greeted him warmly and was like, oh, hey, it's my friend. And Bly went to the Tahitian leaders and he brought them gifts and said that King George wished only to take the breadfruit plants, not all of them, I don't think, but ju just, just to take some breadfruit plants with mm -hmm. us. That's all we want. We brought you these gifts. And then in the meantime, can we, do you mind if we stay here? while we gather them. The Tahitian leaders were fine with that. They were like, yeah, you can stay and take some plants. Thanks for the, they were cool with the trade and they were cool with them staying. For okay. five months, the Bounty's crew remained on Tahiti while they gathered the breadfruit plants. Many of them began to sleep with the native women. 18 officers and men, including Fletcher Christian, received treatment for STDs, which again, before they got to Tahiti, none of them had them. Some of the officers took regular sexual partners. Fletcher Christian formed a close relationship with a woman named Mauatua, who he called Isabella, which was a name he gave her after a former sweetheart from England. Now, that's such BS to me. That's so shady. That he's like, what's your name? And she was like, Mauatua. And he was like, mm, no, I'm going to call you my ex-girlfriend's name. Like no, I don't like that at all. Do you think maybe when like he called the wrong name in bed and was like, "No, that's just what I call you." <laughs> maybe, maybe. Bly didn't judge the men for their promiscuity, but he didn't participate. Um, he wrote, "Quote: The allurements of dissipation are beyond anything that can be conceived." So he was like, "Yeah, I get it. Like, look at all these tempting young ladies. Go ahead." But. <laughs> He did, however, grow really angry because he thought that they were becoming really lazy and he thought the crew was becoming, uh, quote, such neglectful and worthless petty officers. I believe we were never in a ship such as are in this. I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't, there's no, nowhere ever did it say in any of my research that Bly was in love with Fletcher Christian, but the whole voyage there, they're really close. He's giving him money and 
the second they get to Tahiti, Fletcher starts sleep, starts sleeping with a woman, and then Bly it goes down the hill from there. Bly's very angry from then on. I think I think there are some undertones there. I, I think, think if we're reading between the lines. Yeah. Bly believed that because he had given such favor to Fletcher Christian that he should be an example for the other crew members, and he, like, often really held it against him that he had lent him money. Uh, so he was the hardest on him. Um, corporal punishment be- started to become very common. Um, if any equipment were lost or believed to be stolen, there were severe punishments, and floggings were ordered very increasingly. Which, again, this is the same guy that was like, I want to never punish people. Now is punishing people left and right. Interesting. Um, yeah. One man who was flogged, named William Muspratt, decided to desert. On January 5th, 1789, Muspratt, mm. along with two other crew members, Charles Churchill and John Millward, took off in a small boat mm-hmm. with some guns and some ammunition. Um, when going through the belongings that Muspratt left behind, Bly found a list of names that he believed to be a list of people who were in on the plan to desert. The captain oh. claimed that on that list of names included Haywood, who was a member of the crew that he had really trusted, and his protege, Fletcher. Ah, classic. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Bly was calmed down by the crew and convinced that it wasn't true. They were like, no, Fletcher Christian would never betray you because that was the big thing he was mad about. He was like, my boyfriend is going out wants to leave. But yeah. um, they were like, no, I would that's also not be true. Um, and eventually the matter was dropped. Churchill, Millward, and Musrat were found three weeks later, and they were all flogged. The crew of the Bounty uh, finished their work on April 1st, 1789, and they spent four days saying their farewells and planning um, their departure. And then on April 5th, they sailed off. Historians agree that uh-huh. at this point, the men were not close to mutiny, but Bly did not have a good relationship with his crew anymore. Um, he was angry mm-hmm. and intolerant and extremely paranoid, and he didn't understand why they weren't as friendly as they once were, because he would regularly, <laughs> he would regularly like, blow up in their faces and then attempt to resume normal conversation. And when they didn't right. know how to do that, he was like, what's wrong? I'm, you're my friend, right? Like, anyway. Um, <laughs> Fletcher Christian was a particular target of his rage. On April 22nd, they arrived at the island of Namuka to pick up some wood and some water and further supplies, and it was going to be their final stop before they uh, sailed to the Endeavor Strait, uh, which was going to uh-huh. be their, like, longest leg of their journey. Yeah. Bly had visited this area before with Captain James Cook, and he knew the inhabitants were not super fond of European visitors, so he put Fletcher Christian in charge of a group to go and get water. He sent them with muskets, but for some reason he ordered them to leave the muskets in the boat. So uh, when they got to the land, the natives like threatened them, basically. It says it says that, it, that they harassed and threatened Christian's group, but maybe it was literally just like, they were like, who are you? Um, I don't know. So, uh, but Christian's group returned to the bounty with their task incomplete, saying that they, like, they couldn't do it without taking the muskets in with them to the land. Um, and Bly called him a damned cowardly rascal. <laughs> I feel like I can't say it without a pirate accent, but damned cowardly rascal. Mm-hmm. While they were there, also a small anchor and an adze, which is like a, an axe, sort of, were stolen or went missing. And Bly blamed Friar and Christian for it and berated them in front of everybody. 
and in order to recover the missing property, Bly briefly held the island's chieftains hostage on the ship in order to, like, get them to confess and return the stuff, but they were not able to do that, and they ended up leaving without the stuff that they were missing. On April 27th, Christian had grown very upset with the situation, and he was, quote, in a state of despair, depressed, and brooding. Uh, his mood worsened further when Bly accused him of stealing coconuts from the captain's private supply. Bly punished the whole crew for this theft, stopping their rum rations and cutting their food rations in half. Christian couldn't take it anymore and asked fellow crew members to help him gather supplies to build a raft so that he could escape to an island and take his chances living amongst the natives. Um, he may have already acquired some wood from the carpenter Purcell. Um, if I were him, I wrote down at this point, I would try and get back to Tahiti, say sorry to Mawatua, your name is not Isabella, <laughs> beg for her forgiveness, and try and make a life there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds like your dream, actually. Um. <laughs> Two other young gentlemen, George Stewart and Edward Young, begged him not to desert, and they said that if he were to try and seize control of the ship, the entire crew would be with him. The, on the early morning of April 28th, 1789, uh, while the bounty was about 30, 30 nautical miles south of the island of Tofua, Christian decided to mutiny. Um, some say that he hung a sounding plummet around his neck, which is basically just a pole that you can like strap to your wrist. So when you're swimming, you can use it to see how deep the water beneath you is. So mm -hmm. people were saying that he had this around his neck just in case the mutiny went badly and he needed to jump overboard. He got a list of names from Stuart and Young of people who on the ship who they believed were totally on his side. He gathered all that were loyal to him and he had them basically gain control of the upper deck. Those who questioned him were threatened to silence. Christian went below, awoke a member of the crew named Hallett who was asleep um, above the chest containing the ship's muskets. I think that maybe was his job to protect them. And he dismissed him, which again, he was second in command of the ship. So he was just like, you are like, you're dismissed. Um, I'll take this. But then he took all of the guns and distributed them amongst his followers and supporters. And then he headed for Bly's cabin. Three men took hold of the captain, tied his hands, and threatened to kill him if he raised an alarm. Which he immediately did. He called for help, but they didn't kill him. Um, <laughs> yeah, he started screaming for help. But John Fryer came to see what was going on, but the mutineers ordered him not to do anything. Bly was brought to the deck. There was total chaos and pandemonium. Everyone was shouting. Bly kept calling for his crew to put an end to the mutiny, which they were <laughs> unsuccessful in doing. Fryer briefly came up to the deck to speak with Christian, and Christian used a bayonet to force him back down below and told him, quote, I have been in hell for weeks past. Captain Bly has brought this on himself. I love the drama. Wow, <laughs> what a visual. It's really like, he's Beautiful. been so mean to me, you need to let me do this. <laughs> Please, bully your bullies. Yeah. Now, this next part, I think, is kind of really funny. Um, <laughs> it's not really, but I don't know, 200 years have gone by. Um, so Christian wanted to put Bly on a small, like, lifeboat and set him adrift, but the little boat that they were, <laughs> the little boat that they were gonna use, they, like, immediately realized, like, wasn't seaworthy, like, it would sink, and they didn't want to mm. kill Bly, kill him. They, just, yeah. they just wanted to get rid of him. So <laughs> they were like, okay, we'll, we'll use the next smallest boat, which was, like, a medium-sized boat that seats about ten people, and... Uh -huh. <laughs> 
But the thing was they had overestimated the success of getting people on their side and over half the crew wanted to go with Bly. They were like, okay, if he's going to go, we're going to go with him. Um, but oh my god <laughs> they, they didn't fit in the 10 person boat so they had to use, it was literally they kept going up boat sizes so finally they used their biggest um boat in addition to the ship which was like 23 yards long and it seated about 20 people and remember there were 46 oh of them god. but at this point two people had died so there were 44 of them yeah, this mutiny started at 5 a.m and they did <laughs> And then for the next five hours, it was literally like like them deciding which people would go with Bly, what they were allowed to bring. It was like they literally like a bunch of people lined up. They all tried to get on the boat and there were still people like waiting like, well, I want to go too. And people were running downstairs and gathering their belongings. And then there was commotion over, well, do they get to take the compasses with them since they're going to be adrift or, or do we? And, and it was like a division <laughs> of who got what maps and who got what compasses and who got what tools. And it was literally five hours, and and some people wanted to go with Bly, but um, uh, Christian forced them to stay and said, like, well, we're going to have a reduced crew at this point, so we need you to stay and help us run the ship. Like, he held them at gunpoint and said, you have to stay. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is funny. John Fryer, who this whole time, you can't really, you you, you know he doesn't love Bly, but... um, No, he's not loving it. Yeah, he ended up going with Bly, but he offered to, he looked at Bly and said, I want to stay, but he said it was for the purposes of, so I can retake the ship for you, but that was obviously <laughs> such a lie, <laughs> and Bly was no, like, no. that's not true. Yeah, Bly was like, no, you're coming with me. Around uh-huh. 10 o'clock, the ship was launched. Um, Bly ended up um, having, with himself, there were 19 men, and the other mm-hmm. 25 remained on the bounty. Um, Bly's boat raised a sail and headed to the island of Tofua, where they could see smoke rising from a volcano. They wanted to go to the nearby island of Tonga Tapu, because Bly had been there before and he knew one of the natives. But uh, when they got to Tofua, there was some natives there that didn't attack them, but just didn't seem overly happy to see them. Bly and his men were starting to get concerned that they would attack. So they were like, no, Uh we should get out of here. So they started to sail for um, Tonga Tapu, but along the way, the men grew increasingly anxious. They were like, well, you know this one guy there, but you don't know all of them. What if we get there and the natives there want to attack us? And literally, like, the next, like, this next bit is so frustrating. Um, Right. (laughs) They decided that the next place that they would be safest was the Dutch settlement of Kupang in Timor. This was a 4,000 mile journey that would necessitate daily rations of an ounce of bread and a quarter pint of water per day for each man. And Mm -hmm. again, there were a couple islands that they could stop along the way, but all of the men were like, no, the natives will attack us. We can't risk it. So they kept going. That's dumb. I know. They even, they passed the Fiji, they passed a a couple Fiji islands, like possibly many, but at least more than one. And all of them, they could have stopped (laughs) But there was a rumor that the natives on those islands of Fiji were cannibals, so they never let themselves stop. Like, the men were getting sick, they were starving. Yeah! They just had these, like, racist ideas, so they were like, we can't stop anywhere. Also, as we learned from Moby Dick, not all cannibals are the same. That's true. On May 28th, Bly finally landed on a small island that he named Restoration Island, 
and the mm. men stopped there they found a bunch of berries they found some oysters and they had a, a big feast of berries and oysters and from <laughs> it's not a really yummy combo but i'm happy for them i guess <laughs> Uh, and then they island hopped for a while, never going inland because, again, they were terrified Cute. that an island might have natives that would attack them. Um, and a lot of infighting began to occur. There was, a, at one point, one of the men started to get in an argument with Bly, and he threatened him with a knife. Friar, um, at one point, tried to have one of the men, like, arrested, quote-unquote, but Bly, like, mm-hmm. got really mad at him for that. So there's a lot of bickering going on. But again, they were, like, starving and barely surviving and <laughs> for their own stupid reasons. They eventually made it to the Dutch settlement on Kupang, and from there, they sailed to Batavia, which is now called Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Well, they went there to wait for a ship from Europe. Um, a few men okay. died there from illnesses that they had had for a while. Um, at this point, Aww. I would believe that they had scurvy. Bly obtained passage home for himself, his clerk Samuel, and his servant John Smith, and he sailed away on October 16th, leaving four men behind. Well, that's not a very nice <laughs> thing to do. No! The four men, sadly, they either died on Batavia or they died on their journeys home, because they were also malnourished at that Aww. point. Christian, meanwhile, on the bounty, knew that they couldn't go back to England without facing punishment, because what they had done was illegal. Um, mm, yeah, but, but they knew if they didn't return to England, people would come looking for them and bring them back to England and send them to jail. So they went to the nearby island of Tubuai, I think it might be pronounced Tubuai. Um, they wanted to, um, make a permanent settlement there and just like try and survive. <laughs> um, but when okay, they- Okay, that's a method. Yeah. When they got there, though, the natives had seen them coming, and they met them with war canoes. Uh, Christian used a four-pounder gun to kill at least a dozen of them and cause the rest to flee. And so they landed on the island and stayed there for a couple months. Um, They decided that ultimately it wouldn't be a proper settlement because they needed, quote, compliant native labor and women. Which, you know, that's not a great sentence to hear. Um, no, I don't So like that. they decided to go back to Tahiti. Um, Christian conco- decided to don't concoct... do a, that. Yeah. He concocted a story that he planned on telling the Tahitian leaders that he, Bly, and Captain Cook had decided to found a new settlement on a different island called Aitutaki. Christian had just gotten separated from Bly, but Bly was going to be coming back, and so was Captain James Cook. And okay. he, he, he specifically included James Cook because those leaders had met him and they were on good terms. So he yeah. thought that that would help him. But when they got to Tahiti, I don't even know how this happened. Um, I don't know how the rumor spread. Some other Europeans had somehow found out that this was the plan and had told them, like, okay, this, these people are going to come. They're going to tell you that uh, Christian Bly and Captain Cook are going to try and found a settlement and they want your help. And they're just hanging out until the other two come back. But that's not actually the deal, and actually Captain James Cook is already dead. I don't understand how, who these other Europeans were that found out that this was their plan and went and ratted on them. Yeah, yeah, how did they know? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) There was a spy on the inside. (laughs) So because of this, Christian did not want to stay in Tahiti, but they they stayed there for a little bit. But when they arrived, they noticed that the greeting was way less warm than it was the first time they were there. He basically, he gave permission to 15 of his crew members and said, you can go on the island, hang out, do whatever you want. And the rest of his crew were staying on the boat and he had one guy that he kept 
captive on the boat um, who might have been yeah. a loyalist to Bly, or, but uh, and he didn't allow him to leave. And he invited a bunch of Tahitians onto the bounty and was like, we're having a party. Like, we just want to show you that we're here in good spirits. And mo- a majority of the people that showed up were women, some of whom were uh-huh. elderly women. But okay. while they were there, they cut ties from the anchor and sailed off and were basically like, ha ha ha, you're our captive now. Like, we're short on crew, so you have to be our crew now. Yeah, it, it was not great. Um, <laughs> no, it doesn't they, sound great. But the thing is, Bly eventually made it back to England. And he told oh. everybody what Christian had done. So they sent a ship to go capture Christian and whoever was still with him called the HMS Pandora. Uh, it was under Captain Edward Love Edwards. That name. I know, it's a great name. And also, like, this is such a fun play on words, but the, like, brig where they keep their... Um, prisoners is called pandora's box like which came first <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that is isn't that fun um, yeah super fun i love it yeah they went straight to tahiti they got there on the 23rd of march in 1791 and within a few days all 14 um of the 15 men who were there who were still alive um they either surrendered or were captured um they were not given any um, distinction under the law about whether or not they chose to mutiny or were forced to. They were all treated the same. Mm -hmm. They were put in Pandora's box. And there's kind of a sad ending to this story because um, on the way back to England, Pandora ran aground on on the outer Great Barrier Reef. There wasn't really a great effort to save the men who were being held captive. So uh, a couple of them drowned, sadly. Um, But there were 10 remaining prisoners still alive, and they were brought back to England. On September 1792, the HMS Duke in Portsmouth Harbor with Vice Admiral Lord Hood, Commander-in-Chief Portsmouth, (laughs) presiding. That's a funny name. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, that's such a book character name. Most of them... Um, were either put to death by hanging or were put into prison. Very few of them um, were let out of prison eventually. After leaving Tahiti on September 22nd, 1789, Christian sailed Bounty west in search of safe haven. He then formed the idea of settling on Pitcairn Island, far to the east of Tahiti. The island had been reported in 1767, but its exact location was never verified. After months of searching, Christian rediscovered the island on January 15th, 1790. Those poor women that were, like, forced to stay on board with him. I did read that six of the women that were held hostage and forced to be members of the crew were elderly women, and they put them in that medium-sized boat and set them free because they thought that they couldn't handle being, you know, crew members of a ship. On arrival, the ship was unloaded and stripped of most of its masts and spars for use on the island. It was set ablaze and destroyed on January 23rd. So they took apart the boat and used the wood to, like, build stuff. And then they built, they burned down what was left. But essentially, they didn't have a boat anymore. The bounty didn't exist. They were trapped on this island. They couldn't go anywhere. Um, The island proved an ideal haven for the mutineers, uninhabited and virtually inaccessible, with plenty of food, water, and fertile land. For a while, the mutineers and the Tahitians existed peaceably. Christian settled down with Isabella. Oh! Name, first of all, her name's not Isabella. And they had a son who they named. This sentence is just written weirdly. Christian settled down with Isabella, semicolon. A son, Thursday, October Christian, was born, as were other children. His name might have been Thursday, October Christian. Thursday, yeah, yeah. I think that's what his name, <laughs> his name was. Yeah. 
Um, Christian's authority as a leader gradually diminished and he became prone to long periods of brooding and introspection. (laughs) (laughs) I love a broody boy. Gradually tensions and rivalries arose over the increasing uh, period to an extent to which the Europeans regarded the Tahitians as their property. Ah, And particularly the women who, according to uh, um, historians, passed around from, the women were passed around from one husband to the other. That's terrible. Ah. Um, In September of 1793, matters degenerated into extreme violence when five of the mutineers, Christian, Williams, Martin, Mills, and Brown, were killed by Tahitians in a carefully executed series of murders. Christian was set upon while working in his fields, first shot and then butchered with an axe. (gasps) His last words supposedly were, oh dear. I kind of love that that's how it happened, though, that the women that they were, like, treating terribly yeah we're like no no more (laughs) i do think it's kind of funny that i mean i I do think christian got a sort of um um justice served to him and he was murdered by the women that he was you know mistreating and yeah uh, assaulting and kidnapped yeah um kind of funny that the descendants of the people who actually committed the crime were the ones that were like set free and then the people who were like we didn't go along with christian we were forced to do this those were the ones who were punished yeah it's kind of weird but it's a fascinating story anyway yeah, they, it is they, a cool story. they made a movie about it called the mutiny of the bounty in the 60s they built the ship for movie, it. yeah you've seen the ship i've seen the ship the ship has now sunk sadly um it was <laughs> Well, it was in Paris for a very long time, and then it set sail, and um, while it was out um, sailing with, like, I think some tourists on it, it broke, and they brought it back to fix it, but then they set sail again, and it sunk. Oh, poor thing. So, it's no longer a functional ship. Neither is the bounty, you know, which was burned down. Let's do it. So for my middle segment today, I want to talk about something that you might already know about and I already knew about, but like, let's just reiterate, let's just reiterate it because it's so WTF. We're going to talk Mm -hmm. about Portland, Portland, Oregon. Oh, Um, I thought you meant the place that I moved, which every time I see like headlines about Portland, I have a moment of like, oh no, the town that I live in. And then I'll go, oh no, it's the other Portland. And then I'll be like, no, that's not a relief. There's still people like going through yeah. hard times. Like, no, but it's fair to be like, oh God, I just moved there. Like it's, that's totally fair. And you're a sympathetic person. I know you're not doing it to be like, oh, thank God it's not me, you know? Yeah. So in the early hours of Wednesday, um, last week in Portland, a week before you're listening to this, after a night of protests, a series of protesters were pulled off of the street by federal law enforcement officers who were in unmarked cars. The law enforcement officers had been using unmarked vehicles to drive around downtown Portland and detain protesters since at least the day before. There have been multiple personal accounts and videos posted online. I've seen a lot of it on Twitter, um, which show the officers driving up to people and detaining individuals with no explanation about why they're being arrested and driving off. So these individuals are not being read their Miranda rights. On Thursday, the Department of Homeland Security spokesperson said that the agency could confirm that acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf was in Portland during the day, um, but he didn't acknowledge other questions about the arrests. Um, Homeland Security Acting Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli 
store, acknowledged that federal agents had used unmarked vehicles to pick up people in Portland, but said it was done to, quote, keep officers safe and away from crowds and to move detainees to, quote, a safe location for questioning. He said the one instance I'm familiar with, they were um, believed they had identified someone who had assaulted officers or a federal building. Um, I don't understand this broken quote. Who assaulted officers or, oh, they, they identified someone who had assaulted federal officers or the federal building there in the courthouse. They thought that they had identified a protester who had, like, spray painted or defaced the courthouse. Upon okay. questioning, they determined they did not have the right person and that person was, was released. Uh, um, Cuccinelli said that uh, he said, quote, I fully expect that as long as people continue to be violent and to destroy property, that we will attempt to identify those folks. We'll pick them up in front of the courthouse. If we swap them elsewhere, elsewhere, we will pick them up elsewhere. And if we have a question about somebody's identity, like the first example I noted to you, after questioning, determine it isn't someone of interest, then they get released. And that's the standard law enforcement procedure, and it's going to continue as long as the violence continues. Such BS. Um, Customs and Border Protection released a statement on Friday um, about an incident on video. In the video, an agent approached a person, a person suspected of assaulting federal agents. Um, and in the video, they say that a large violent mob moved towards their location. So they took the person and moved towards a, a safer place. Um, the Customs and Border Protection um, Agency ide agents identified themselves and they were wearing their insignia during the encounter. The names of the agents were not displayed due to recent doxing incidents against law enforcement personnel who serve and protect our country. So now the Customs and Border Protection is also saying that they're there too, but they're doing it to be safe, which is not mm, true. Yeah. On Friday, U.S. Attorney Billy J. Williams, um, who is the Department of Justice, Justice's chief law enforcement official in Oregon, called for an inspector general investigation into DHS personnel. He said, what is happening now in Portland should concern everyone in the United States. Usually when we see people in unmarked cars forcibly grab someone off the street, we call it kidnapping. Um, oh, he didn't say that. Jan Carson, who is an executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon, said this in a written statement. Um, a judge has allowed the ACLU to add federal agencies to its lawsuit seeking to limit what law enforcement can do during protests that formerly was not allowed. But after, but since this, a judge has allowed the ACLU to sue essentially law enforcement. Um, the Oregon attorney, attorney General Ellen Rosenblum announced Saturday morning that she would be filing a lawsuit against the DHS, the U.S. Marshals Service, the United States Customs and Border Protection, the Federal Protection Service, and their agents. And then just today, like two hours ago, CNN reported that a U.S. attorney requests the DHS investigation after video or the, that a U.S. attorney has requested a DHS investigation after a video shows masked, camouflaged federal authorities arresting protesters in Portland. This request is aimed specifically at the Department of Homeland Security personnel who have been captured on various occasions arresting protesters and putting them in unmarked SUVs. Um, US, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, who is a Democrat that represents Oregon, tweeted, authoritarian governments, not democratic republics, sent unmarked authorities after their protesters. Um, and then the video he tweeted, it shows two masked camouflage individuals um, detain a person dressed in a black outfit, and they place them in an unmarked van before driving away. The Customs Border Protection made a statement saying, 
violent anarchists have organized events in, Pro in Portland over the last several weeks with willful intent to damage and destroy federal property, as well as injure federal officers and agents. These criminal actions will not be tolerated. Commis CBP Commissioner Mark Morgan tweeted, the agency will continue to arrest violent criminals that are destroying federal property. I mean, I've already said that. And then finally, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler demanded Friday that President Donald Trump send the federal officers home. He said, this is not the America we want. This is not the Portland we want. We're demanding that the president remove these additional troops that he sent to our city. It is not helping to contain or de-escalate the situation. It's obviously having exactly the opposite impact. Yeah. And that is what is going on briefly in I... Portland didn't really know what had started it at the beginning. I just knew that, that th there were tensions between protesters and the police. So thank you for filling me in on the situation. Yeah, it's literally just like the police in Portland specifically have decided that because protesters are being quote-unquote violent, which like are they even, I have not even seen evidence of that, and like, you know, defacing public and federal buildings, that that gives them the right to treat them that way, which is not true um, which is why the ACLU are filed a lawsuit against the DHS which goes to the ACLU Excuse I hope me. it works out I hope that's able to bring yeah. this so hopefully we'll be seeing them being pulled from Portland look for that in the news so that's what's going on in Portland, in Portland which brings me to my topic which it's a really good segue which is a topic that I don't really know what to call except for like legal discrimination oh, yeah, and yeah, like yeah, the yeah. history of that. Um, this is, this is going to be a lot of constitution and Supreme court talk, which I love. Great. So we're just going to get into it. So you asked me about the legality of discriminating against someone in terms of like providing them a service. I'm not talking about workplace discrimination. I'm talking about like, who do you have to serve? Yeah. You know? um, the fifth amendment, granted Americans' rights to non-discrimination in terms of legal proceedings. The Fifth Amendment includes things like innocent until proven guilty, double jeopardy, that sort of stuff. Um, but on July 28, 1868, like 90 years later, Congress ratified the 14th Amendment, which included the Equal Protection Clause. The EPC, as I will refer to it, reads, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This amendment was meant to secure the rights of Black Americans following the Civil War was ratified only three years after the 13th Amendment, which officially prohibited slavery, but did not do enough to secure their rights as citizens. Which, yeah. frankly, we still haven't done enough to do that. I agree. In 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court had, had established a precedent where Black men had no legal rights in America. This is only 11 years before. But mm -hmm. following the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865, ex-Confederate states adopted Black codes. These laws severely restricted the rights of Black people to hold any form of property. Um, they also put placed requirements for voting and established harsher criminal sentencing for Black people as well. Something that has set a precedent for our current systematic racism in America. Mm -hmm. This led the Republican-controlled Congress. Okay, remember, Republicans are the abolitionists. It's going to be, that always confuses I know. me. But it's, like, it's, yeah. Republicans... Republicans flipped much later. At this point, my Republicans were the liberals. 
my dad was pointing out the, that um, we were watching some news segment and they were replaying that thing that Trump says all the time of like, not many people know Lincoln was a Republican. And my dad was like, he always says that, but anybody who paid attention in high school history knows that. Like, yeah. <laughs> like at that point it was the Republicans and the Whigs and the Whigs won yeah. slaves. Like, yeah. <laughs> so not the same thing. This led the Republican-controlled Congress to enact the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And this Civil Rights Act allowed citizens to have full and equal benefit of all laws as is enjoyed by white citizens. That was the defining factor. You know, they were pointing out the system and in their verbiage. President Andrew Johnson actually vetoed the bill amidst concerns that this was not within their constitutional rights to enact such a bill following knowing what the Supreme Court's decision had been on the Dred Scott decision. He was like, this specifically goes against something the Supreme Court has already ruled is constitutional. So like, I don't think that you have the constitutional rights to pass this bill. So this mm -hmm. led to Congress drafting the Equal Protection Clause. This was also motivated by the discrimination white unionists were facing in the former Confederacy during this area. This is the time that many unionists were occupying the South during Reconstruction to be like, we want to make sure that you're rebuilding your society as we want you to. Um, but they were being denied service. They were being denied housing for being um, Northerners. So this also yeah. was like partially to protect them. The Southern states were unsurprisingly opposed to the Civil Rights Act. But in 1865, I did not know about this, Congress actually used a clause in the first article of the Constitution, which states Congress has the right to, quote, be the judge of the qualifications of its own members. And they use this to revoke some of the Confederate states' rights to elect <gasps> members to Congress because they had seceded from the Union. They we were love like, a clause coming in clutch. It's crazy. So they were like, no, you have not been ju judged as qualified to vote on this because you have seceded from the Union. Um, so therefore, you cannot elect senators and representatives. So when Congress ratified the 14th Amendment, it actually was not passed by a full Congress. It became a requirement in order to re-enter the Union for the former Confederate states to ratify the 14th Amendment. They were tricky. So then, after the 14th Amendment, including the Equal Protection Clause, was ratified, um, the issue became that states had different interpretations of the word equality. Interracial marriage was obviously a big question mark. In 1872, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that the state's ban on interracial marriage violated the Civil Rights Act, the Equal Protection Clause, but this would be followed almost 100 years later um, in Loving versus Virginia, which ruled that laws banning interracial marriage violated the Equal Protection Clause nationally. But it was yeah. an issue from state to state before that. The Equal Protection Clause also left openings for interpretation in terms of segregation and the rights of women. In 1880, a black man convicted of murder by an all-white jury challenged a West Virginia statute excluding blacks from jury duty. In this case, Strouder versus West Virginia, the Supreme Court ruled that the exclusion of blacks from juries was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause to black defendants. However, yeah, exactly. the court did say that states, quote, may confine the selection to males, to freeholders, to citizens, to persons within certain ages, 
or to persons having educational qualifications. We do not believe the 14th Amendment was ever intended to prohibit this. Its aim was against discrimination because of race or color. And this is gonna come up many more times that the Equal Protection Clause and the 14th Amendment was meant to address race. So then later, when they start arguing discrimination on different bases, there, the Supreme Court is going to struggle with this idea that why was the Equal Protection Clause created? Oh, to protect from race. So you can't call upon the Equal Protection Clause because you were discriminated against on the basis of sex. Okay. That's going to come up. The Civil Rights Cases of 1883 also called into question the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1865. The Act said that all persons should have full and equal enjoyment of inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement. But the Supreme Court reached a decision that the Equal Protection Clause only applied to state-sanctioned operations, meaning any private organization could legally violate the Equal Protection Clause, making it legal for a privately owned company to discriminate based mm. off of race. In 1880, or anything else, not even race, anything. In 1886, Justice Stanley Matthews expanded the definition of the mentioned persons in the 14th Amendment to include not only Black Americans, but legal immigrants, because again, they thought that it had to do with race and ethnicity, not necessarily about sex, gender, sexual orientation yet. Yeah. But at this time, they were like, that also includes legal immigrants. I don't think at this point that included Indigenous persons, but now it does. Okay. The most famous court case revolving around the Equal Protection Clause was Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. In this case, the Supreme Court upheld segregation in the Louisiana Jim Crow laws, and they ruled that the Equal Protection Clause had been intended, quote, to defend equality in civil rights, not equality in social arrangements. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, there is this justice, his name is John Marshall Harlan. I vaguely remember learning about him, but he was known as the great dissenter in his time on the Supreme Court. And I've he dissented. That. Yeah, he's dissented in both this case, meaning he did not agree. Um, he thought that you could not have equality just in civility, that it had to be in all aspects of life. Yeah. Um, and he also dissented in the civil rights case of 1883. And I find him to be a super interesting person because he was born and raised by a very wealthy slaveholding family in Kentucky. But Kentucky actually didn't join the Confederacy. The Kentucky, Kentucky was in the Union. So when it got to the Civil War, he was a huge Unionist and he became the Attorney General of Kentucky oh. and like ended up being this very liberal Supreme Court justice, liberal for the late 19th century yeah. but still like I just find him to be a very interesting person um, but he concluded that quote arbitrary separation um, by race was a badge of servitude wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and the equality before the law established by the constitution and this philosophy of constitutional colorblindness would not be accepted until after world war ii and he said that in 1896 fascinating guy um a really good example of equality and civil rights not working um, is the stop and frisk policy in New York. Do you know what that is? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you so stop and, ahead and say it, but. 
So stop and frisk is this idea that the police are allowed to stop whoever they deem suspicious. And this sounds like a colorblind law because you can say, oh, they can stop anyone they find suspicious. But really what this means is that um, New York cops are much more likely to stop Hispanic and Black people than they are to stop a white person. And this drove the 90s, like, sort of counterculture movement known as driving while Black. That's where that came from. And this is a good example of equality in civil rights, but not equality in social arrangements not working mm-hmm. because they're refusing to acknowledge the social implications of what they think is a colorblind law. So the Supreme Court ruled in 1927 that the 14th Amendment prohibited the denial of the vote based on race. Then in 1962, almost 40 years later, the court ruled that the malproportioning of legislators to residents was a violation of the EPC. This was becoming a problem that some legislators represented about 10 times more than their neighbors because of, um, what's that? What's that called? It's not gerrymandering. Uh, it's... um. Oh, I was gonna say gerrymandering. But... Is that what it is? No, gerrymandering. It's what's wrong with gerrymandering is when you like draw state, when you draw district lines, um, to decide who votes in what county. Yes, that is gerry. So it was a gerrymandering issue. Yeah, um, yeah. In 1938, in a case called Missouri X-Rail Games, I don't know what X-Rail stands for. I really tried to find it and I couldn't. Versus Canada, which I don't know why Canada was involved. I think that was a person's name. The Supreme Court ruled that the University of Missouri, which was a state school, um, having a law school that was for white people only violated the Equal Protection Clause. So if they were a state school and they had and they wanted to have programs, they had to make sure that they offered those programs both for white people and for black people. Yeah. In 1948, in Shelley versus Kramer, the Supreme Court found that a discriminatory private contract could not violate the EPC, but the court's enforcement of a contract could. So if you were to sue somebody because um, they discriminated against you on the basis of race and the court let that go, like didn't refuse to see the case, then that court could be sued under the EPC. Oh, weird right legal things sound so confusing to me i'm like uh lawsuits on lawsuits it that's essentially what it was um but the big the big idea is that the equal protection clause only applies to organizations that are public not ones that are private Mm -hmm. um several other cases then paved the way eventually for brown versus board of education these cases centered around the idea that the separation was not the legal problem but the separate states were not equal to one another. So it wasn't a problem that whites and blacks were not mixing, but the problem was that the facilities and the places that black people were being housed and forced into were clearly inferior to the ones of their white counterparts. Brown versus Board of Education famously ended racial segregation in public schools. Over the next decade, several other cases would follow that desegregated other public programming. However, historians and civil servants alike agree that Brown versus Board did little to actually desegregate schools. Um, Fun fact, by the end of the 90s, schools were just as segregated as they were at the beginning of the 60s. And the American public school system is actually still largely de facto segregated um, because of housing and zoning and income inequality and all those things. So because inequality can be caused either intentionally or unintentionally, the Supreme Court decided that the Equal Protection Clause itself does not forbid government policies that unintentionally lead to racial disparities. 
though Congress may have some power under other clauses of the Constitution to address what they call unintentional disparate impacts. This was addressed in a case that I think is a really good example because um, that's a confusing idea. Um, this case is called Arlington Heights versus Metropolitan Housing Corp. It was in 1977 and in that case, the plaintiff, who was a housing developer, sued a city in the suburbs of Chicago that had refused to rezone a plot of land on which the plaintiff intended to build low-income racially integrated housing. Now, the denial on its face was not clear evidence of a racially discriminatory intent because he, it's hard to say, oh, well, you discriminated against me because he was not a person of color. However, yeah. Um, because the result of his denial and his refusal to rezone had racial implications, um, the refusal prevented mostly African American, African Americans and Hispanics from moving in. So he was able to sue him on the basis of a disparate impact. Mm -hmm. So on this, Justice Lewis Powell wrote or stated, proof of racially discriminatory intent or purpose is required to show a violation of the EPC. So after this, you couldn't just say they discriminated against me or someone else on the basis of race. You had to prove it. You had to prove that that was their intent. Yeah. Washington uh, versus Davis in this also in the 70s also established the Equal Protection Clause was not designed to guarantee equal outcomes, but rather equal opportunities very different. So originally the 14th Amendment did not forbid discrimination based on sex, as I said. In the court, suspect class, this is important to understand, refers to a group of people who are likely to face discrimination. So in the court's eyes, a more suspect group is one that's actually more at risk. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so in 1971, the Supreme Court decided in the case Reed versus Reed to extend the Equal Protection Clause to protect women from sex discrimination in places where there's no rational basis for discrimination. Now, it's sometimes hard to think of a place where there would be a rational basis for discrimination. Yeah. Um, I think this is an example where bathrooms are coming into it. Like, can you rationally discriminate against a woman for using a man's bathroom. Like, you know, I think that's where, yeah, I think, I think we're getting back to that now with the uh, rights of trans people, yeah. but there are locations, for example, that have been deemed like, you know, gentlemen's clubs and, you know, whatever. Um, but I think it was also meant to protect women in terms of there can be places where men are not allowed to be. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, because again, women are more suspect than men. And I mean that in like a good way. <laughs> um, in regards to sex, the Supreme Court has not wanted to extend full suspect classification status for groups other than racial minorities and religious groups. Um, so even so even though women are considered not a minority because that's not the right word, but like of a of a suspect class, no one has reached that that level. Um, as someone of a non-white race in the mm -hmm. eyes of the Supreme Court. Um, in 1985, the Supreme Court refused to extend this suspect class to people with disabilities. In 1996, um, they ratified um, a constitutional amendment in Colorado. Oh, sorry, they refused to ratify a Colorado constitutional amendment that would deny homosexuals minority status. Colorado wanted to stop homosexuals from citing the EPC. 
um, because this is really messed up. They said that homosexuals were only citing the EPC to seek quote unquote special treatment. Um, so they were trying to deny them that status and the Supreme Court upheld that homosexuals were of a more suspect class. Okay, so that's a yeah. good outcome? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Like the Supreme Court was like, you can't tell them that they can't do that because you don't like it, essentially. But they were like, yes. but they are, they are at risk, is what yeah. the Supreme Court said. Yeah. While the courts have applied rational basis scrutiny, rational basis scrutiny is what they, they apply to sex, sexual orientation, disability, age now. Age is a, mm. is a qualification. Um, it has been argued that discrimination based on sex should be interpreted to include discrimination based on sexual orientation. Um, like there's this whole thing like is sex and sexual orientation like they are linked but they are also separate. Um, in which mm -hmm. case women are of a higher suspect classification than sexual orientation or like sex is higher than sexual orientation. So if they granted discrimination based on sexual orientation, it would move it up to the same level and they would have to apply that scrutiny and that suspect to any gay rights case. So okay. essentially when the Supreme Court looks at different cases, they apply at a certain level of scrutiny based on how severe they think the discrimination is. And there's mm -hmm. this debate whether sex and sexual orientation should be looked at at the same level, which race being at the most suspect, the highest level of scrutiny mm -hmm. um, based off of the precedent set by the 14th Amendment and the EPC. In 2015, the Supreme Court held the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to all couples by the EPC and the 14th Amendment. So that was a big success there. Um, right now, the entire United States is covered by the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 which prohibits discrimination by privately owned places of public accommodation on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. Places of public accommodation that could still be privately owned include hotels, restaurants, theaters, banks, health clubs, and stores. This means nonprofit organizations like churches are exempt from that law. So churches lawfully can discriminate against you based off of sex, race, sexual orientation. The, the federal law does not prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. Um, so gays are not a protected group under that federal law. However, That's not good. Well, however, about 20 states, which isn't enough, but still some, including New York and California, have enacted laws that prohibit discrimination in public accommodations based off of sexual orientation. So some states have already guaranteed them that protection. So what this means is that you can refuse to serve someone even if they're in a protected group, but the refusal can't be arbitrary and you can't apply it to just one group of people. Um, an example of this would be um, a business cannot put a sign in their store that says we receive the right to refuse service to anyone because that's arbitrary. What you can say is no shirts, no, no shoes, no service because that's like a very specific yeah, qualification. And not wearing a shirt is not an identity. Exactly. And they can't it can't be very clear that the reason you're refusing them service is because of their race, religion, sexual orientation, or sex. So yeah. if you said you can't come in here wearing a headscarf, that person could sue you because that is clearly meant to discriminate against Muslims. Their religion, yeah. Exactly. There must be a reason for refusing service and you have to be consistent. Um, you can't randomly refuse someone because you don't like the way they look or dress. Um, and you must apply your policy to everyone. 
Um, so an example would be like, you can't turn away a black man who's not wearing a tie at a high end restaurant, but then let in a white man who's not wearing a tie. Mm -hmm. That's where, and that's where we're at with this now. So we went back to, you asked me about the couple with the bakery that refused service, um, because it went against their religion. That, that was not legal under the equal protection clause because they were a a place of public accommodation and they would not, they wouldn't have done that if the couple was not gay. Okay. So if they had said, if the baker had said, we will not bake you a cake for anybody whose marriage is not happening in a church, that's actually legal because that's not specific to identity, oh, you know? Yeah. Like you could just happen to be a person that'd be like, oh, sorry, like we want it to be at a church because of our religious beliefs. But because it was a same sex couple, then it violated the EPC. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's like the history of discrimination in America, which is such a broad topic. And like, I know I no, so no. I in. well, I wanted specifically to have like talking points that I could use if someone was like, "You can't tell me that I have to wear a mask in here. That violates my rights." So like, well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's different. See, that's an interesting one because public health has nothing to do with the EPC, you know. But, but also, now. Like- businesses are allowed to say though because saying you can't come in because you're not wearing a mask has nothing to do with identity you know exactly like they can't say if you're black and you're not wearing a mask you can't come in but they can say if you're not wearing a mask you can't come in because that's a very clear term of service yeah private companies at least can do that public companies i i don't know because that's a government decision that's true which we're still waiting on and yeah. So we'll see how it goes in Atlanta with the the governor suing um, the oh, mayor. Geez. Or not the mayor, but the, making it so that they can't. Which is so dumb because so many other cities in Georgia all made the same decision and he's not suing them. So it's clearly a political thing. Yeah, it is. It's so clearly. That's it on that. Um, thank, you. thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This is like, I some... I enjoy politics and, like, law from a faraway mm. standpoint. I don't think I could ever go to, like, law school or anything. But learning about it interests you. Yeah, like, it's something that I'm interested in, like, tangentially. Yeah. So, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us directly through the link in our show notes or consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. And we love to put it on our show. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? So I was reading an article. I was reading some article. Yeah. And, oh, I was reading about John Lewis. Rest in peace, John Lewis. Oh yeah. Civil rights activism. Which, like, I know I really glossed over the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but I really was just trying to stick with laws. Yeah. Um, I was reading about John Lewis. And I don't think he was one of these, but I could be wrong. I could be misremembering it. But I want you to tell me about the Freedom Riders. Oh, okay. I know nothing about them. Except, like, what they did. But, like... I don't really either, so I'm happy to learn. Yay! Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? Ooh, what have you been wondering? I've been wondering about optometry. 
and why <laughs> glasses are so expensive. Okay. So this is not recent... what I was expecting you to say. What is you... Well, someone I recently told me that they that that most glasses cost very little to manufacture, so there's mm-hmm. no reason why they should cost as much as they do. But I don't know why they do. So I've been wondering. Interesting. Good, th- good thing to wonder. What a wonder. All right. I will happily tell you about that. Yay. That, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know, what I've been wondering.